0: Welcome to the My Child Will Thrive podcast, where we talk about the latest science backed research, gain insights from leading experts, parent perspectives, resources, and tools to help you on your path to optimizing health and development for your child with ADHD, autism, sensory processing disorder, learning disabilities, or other neurodevelopmental disorders. I'm your host, Tara Hunkins, certified functional nutritional therapy practitioner and mother. My own experiences with my daughter combined with as much training as I can get my hands on, research I can dig into, and conferences I can attend have helped me develop systems and tools for parents like you who feel overwhelmed trying to help their children. A quick disclaimer, the information provided here is for educational purposes only, it's not intended to diagnose or treat your child, and it's not a substitute for working with a qualified practitioner this episode is brought to you by the autism adhd and sensory processing disorder summit a free 10-day summit where i interview world-renowned neurodevelopmental experts register for free at www.mychildwillthrive.com forward slash summit again it's www.mychildwillthrive.com forward slash summit today's podcast episode is quite special i'm sharing with you five different snippets from the summit where I interviewed world-renowned and respected dural developmental nutrition and naturopathic experts. First up is Dr. Robert Melillo, an authority in developmental functional neurology who's transformed tens of thousands of lives through his Brain Balance Achievement Centers and his best-selling book, Disconnected Kids, who will explain the role of brain imbalances in children with autism and ADHD. Next, we have Julie Matthews, Recognized by the National Association of Nutritional Professionals, she sits on two scientific advisory boards, including the Autism Research Center, who will talk about how foods impact your child's behavior and how to fix the root cause. Following Dr. Matthews is Dr. Darren Ingalls. He is a licensed naturopathic doctor with more than 30 years experience in the healthcare field. Author of the Lyme solution, a five-part plan to fight the inflammatory autoimmune response. and Discuss about allergies and brain inflammation, what you need to know. Trudy Scott, our next guest, is an acclaimed food mood expert and author of the Anti-Anxiety Food Solution, how the foods you eat can help calm your anxious mind, and she's also the host of the Anxiety Summit. She'll shed light on anxiety's role in autism, ADHD, and sensory processing disorder, and how nutrient therapy can help. And last but not least, Dr. Krista Burns, the founder of the American Posture Institute, author of the textbook, The Posture Principles, and TEDx Speaker, will talk about the posture brain access. Now, on with the show. Let's start with Dr. Robert Melillo talking about brain imbalances in children with autism, ADHD, sensory processing disorder, dyslexia, learning disabilities, and more you have a child that has autism, whatever the diagnosis is, why is understanding the balance, uh, between, balance between the hemispheres of the brain
1: so important? Because if you don't know that most basic question, um, then you don't know, you can't really answer a lot of things. You can't answer what causes it. You can't answer you know, what may help it or if something is working better than another. Um, You can't talk about really almost anything unless you understand what the problem actually is. And as a clinician um, and as a parent uh, to try to help my own child and other kids I needed to know, well, what am I trying to do? What is the actual issue that I'm trying to correct? And is it something that I can even correct, right? And so to me, it's it's the most primary question. And that is what I've devoted, you know, almost the last 30 years of my life to really understanding. And I think that, you know, with the research that I've published and with my lab and some of the independent research on my work that's gone on, it's proven that we really understand what's happening in the brain better than really anybody else at this point, and the understanding that there's something called a functional disconnection, and that primarily that is between the two hemispheres, and that is the primary issue that causes the symptoms, and it's also the thing that we need to address if we want to help uh, these individuals.
0: What does a functional disconnection look like from a symptom perspective, from a parent's perspective?
1: The classic thing you're gonna see is what's called an unevenness of skills in where there's this obvious imbalance in the child, um, and you know what we see is that many of these kids are exceptional. And in fact, when we look at the genetics, and, and this is one of the big misconceptions out there, that you know these problems are due to genetic mutations or damage or injury to genes or um, you know uh, polymorphisms, and, and that's really not true. Um, what happens is that certain genes might be turned off during development, which is really called epigenetics. And they're inhibited, so they're not damaged or broken in any way. But mainly, when we look at the genetics of these kids, what, from an evolutionary perspective, what we see is that really they have an excessive version of a trait that actually makes them very talented or gifted. Um, But what happens is that if you take a trait, and if you're, if it's too strong, Uh, At the same time, you have other traits that are going to be weaker. And most people, you know, as they have talent or intellect, and as they have, you know, abilities, that they can overcome their weaknesses with their strengths. But if they become too far apart, the weakness actually overtakes the the strength and that becomes more of a disability. For
0: example, the one that I think is the biggest one that people talk about actually, it's skipping a milestone, like creeping and crawling. So can you explain to people what the difference is between creeping and crawling and why skipping any milestone, but let's say that one in particular, is going to impact their development?
1: So imagine it's like saying, well, you know, we're building a house, but we want to just, you know, if the if the second floor isn't completely flint finished, if it's not, you know, fortified or if it's lopsided, it doesn't matter. We can just go to the next floor. Right. So the idea that we can just go and skip over something and then go to the next thing and it doesn't have an impact is ridiculous when you when you think of the brain as building, being built from the bottom up, right, like layers of a cake. Imagine if one, one layer is, is not fully baked or if it's a little, you know, flat on one side and it's tipped. Is that going to have an impact on the rest of the cake on top? Of course it is, right? So, when you understand that these developmental stages Allow the movements that we do the feedback that we that we have at that stage specifically develops and grows that area of the brain and Then that area of the brain is foundational for the next area and the next level of movement And so if we don't go through those stages, then we haven't really built a stable foundation for the brain to develop on and if we don't do that then it may never really come down like it's supposed to and regulate everything like the gut like the immune system like the autonomic system like the way we move and our processing of sensory information everything is regulated like we talk about sensory integration issues what's happening we're not filtering that from the brain down but that's because it, it hasn't completed its bottom-up development. And so this is really so important to understand. And the concept along with that, that has really become so important to me. Next,
0: we have Julie Matthews. Listen as she expands further on how foods impact your child's behavior and how to fix the root cause. Why are they, those particular types of compounds that are in some foods as well as in chemicals that are in foods that that we eat and get exposed to, why are they so troublesome for these kids?
2: That's a really great question. Actually, this was really first discovered, I would say, in the 70s by Dr. Ben Feingold, where I am here in San Francisco. Um, And he discovered that these phenolic compounds uh, can create hyperactivity among a whole host of other problems like irritability, um, aggression, sleeping problems, all sorts of things. um, When someone isn't able to biochemically process these substances. And what some of the work of um, Rosemary Waring and others found was that children with autism have a deficiency in a biochemical pathway called sulfation. And sulfation is one of the things that processes these salicylates and phenols and various compounds. I would look at taking out the offending foods and taking some of the burden off the biochemistry and giving their body a chance to kind of calm down a bit and maybe build up some of these reserves. Um, We can talk a little bit later about how we can help improve that ability to process these. But to me, the first step would be removing the foods that are causing the problem and then going from there. Now, that's a simple thing and not such a simple thing depending on to the extent for which you wanna remove these.
0: So that sort of leads us into the question of um, how do we fix our children's ability to process these foods appropriately so they can add them back in?
2: I think that that's a really key point because I find that with a lot of diets, I'm not picking on anyone per se. I think just generally, if we have a diet and as these subscribed rules, then we do these rules and people get better. And we think, great, you know, this is their diet. This is the diet that they need. But we never kind of think about, well, why aren't they tolerating these foods? Is there something about the gut? is there a pathogen that is depleting the nutrients in that pathway which is what can happen with phenols um is there uh um, some deficiency upstream somewhere in the pathways uh what is going on and how can we adjust it and so for me it's looking at how can i improve these pathways how can i provide nutrients to build up those pathways and the pools of nutrients available and how can i get rid of anything that is going to be depleting those uh the
0: nutrients in those pathways listen in as dr darren ingles discusses allergies and brain inflammation what you need to know I'd love for you to describe uh, the dip for, first of all for people the difference between an allergy um, and a sensitivity and an intolerance
3: allergy has a very strict definition so allergy is really referring to those reactions that happen within minutes to you know maybe less than you know 30 minutes after you have exposure to a different you know substance so if you eat a peanut and your face swells and you can't breathe I mean you're clearly allergic to peanuts or if you eat a strawberry and you break out in hot you're allergic to strawberries so those kind of reactions are true allergies again they happen very quickly the reactions are usually pretty severe and in some cases can even be life-threatening and so you know that is not what we're typically referring to fortunately with most of the kids that we know we're dealing with you know those kind of reactions fortunately or unfortunately get identified usually pretty early it's usually obvious to parents that you know their child ate something or got exposed to something and had that severe reaction because you know it It just happens so quickly, it's pretty clear. But if it's anything that happens, you know, hours to days after the fact, as a parent, it's almost impossible to identify what that substance might be. So when we look at other types of immune reactions, you know, there's what are called immune intolerances. So immune intolerances really are enzyme problems. So if you're lactose intolerant, you know, you don't have the right enzyme to break down the sugar in milk, or if you're gluten intolerant, you don't have the right enzymes to break down the protein in wheat. You know, these type of issues can cause a lot of symptoms, both physical and mental, but that's not really primarily an immune problem. There is an immune thing that happens, but that's sort of secondary. It's just, you know, you don't make enough of the right enzymes to break it down, and that partially digested protein or sugar, that's what causes those symptoms. So that's a true intolerance. And this other term we use, you know, food sensitivities or other types of environmental sensitivities. You know, it's, again, sort of a generic term that just describes some sort of delayed reaction. And when you go into the literature and you read, I mean, there really isn't great information about what that mechanism is. You know, having studied immunology, my best guess is it's probably what's called a delayed hypersensitivity or delayed reaction. And if anyone's ever had a TB test before, at least the old TB test where they would poke you on the arm, they'd take him back two days later, and let's see if your arm blows up. That's a delayed reaction. So we think these kind of food reactions are probably something very similar to that where you know a child eats a food and then hours to days later you start to see you know behavior problems, physical problems, bowel problems, and so forth.
0: Let's talk a little bit about how allergies and sensitivities actually affect children's brain. How does that happen?
3: Right. Well, I think at this point most people are pretty aware that there's this gut-brain connection, right? That's really significant. So your whole gut microbiome, your gut ecology, plays a huge role in how it impacts the brain. But you can imagine if a child's eating a food that they're sensitive sensitive to that inflammatory reaction that probably starts in the gut ultimately translates and creates, you know, inflammation in the brain. Uh, if you guys follow Dr. Theoreides, uh, Theo Theorides, he's a, an MD-PhD researcher at Tufts University. He's actually done a lot of research on children with autism, and he finds that they have a significantly higher amount of mast cells in their brain. And mast cells are the cells in your body that release histamine and all these chemicals that we typically associate with allergy. So when these kids get, you know, allergy, they don't necessarily get hay fever. They don't get the runny nose, the itchy eyes and sneezing and so forth they get you know behavior problems they get sleep disturbances they get cognitive issues language issues so you know depending on what part of the brain gets affected you know that sort of dictates what you're going to see symptom wise so really you know as we're controlling the environment and environment is a function of load so you know we like to look at allergies as really being kind of individual allergens that trigger those reactions but in reality you know we, we use this concept of a barrel that we're all born with a barrel I think kids on the spectrum are born with a shot glass you know it just doesn't take very much to overflow before they become symptomatic so it can be food and mold and pollen and chemical and you know whatever else that they're exposed to and as that barrel overflows then they become symptomatic so the more that we can control what goes into the barrel the more we're going to you know, down regulate that immune response down regulate that inflammatory response and ultimately that's kind of what turns that brain on fire off
0: and i think that like you said, with, when you're talking about, we talk about one chemical that comes out of that, that reaction, and there's the whole a whole slew of ones we're we're not even looking at in, in the, with that level of intensity quite yet. So
3: yeah, and, and Dr. Theo found in his research there's a chemical in the brain called neurotensin, and neurotensin seems to be one of these sort of triggering chemicals that starts that whole cascade of events in the brain that leads to brain inflammation.
0: Trudy Scott, our next guest, will shed light on anxiety's role in autism, ADHD, and sensory processing disorder and how nutrient therapy can help.
4: I wanted to just share uh, this one paper that was published in the American Journal of Occupational Therapy. The title is Sensory Overresponsivity and Anxiety in Children with ADHD and what they said is that 25% of kids with ADHD have comorbid anxiety disorder and they wanted to see um, whether this uh, sensory processing disorder was related to elevated levels of anxiety in children with ADHD. It was a small study, it was only 24 children ages 6 to 10 and what they did find that there was this correlation. Uh, you know, there is this science backing up this correlation between ADHD, sensory processing disorder and anxiety. And they just, you know, this was an occupational therapy journal Mm -hmm. and they said, you know, this is something that occupational therapists need to be aware of. Is it the anxiety uh, that is caused by or a symptom of the sensory processing? Is it the sensory processing that is caused by the anxiety or is it the presence of both the anxiety and the sensory processing disorder and and it's linked by some other factor and i think it's all of the above you know we've got the stress of of the overwhelm we've got the underlying similarities low GABA gluten sensitivity so there definitely is this overlap and the the important thing i think that we that I, i just wanted to mention here is what i have seen and the feedback that i've had from my community is a lot of kids will not resonate with the term anxiety. They they don't have that in their vocabulary. So kids acting out, kids um, feeling, um, you know, looking irritable, having temper tantrums, that might be their way of expressing their anxiety. So, you know, we, we need to keep that in mind. And so it's just observing behaviors. And we're going to talk about the amino acids and doing a trial to determine if it's going to help. And then seeing how they respond is often the easiest way to determine is it actually going to benefit yeah. the
0: symptoms. When we um, dive into the low serotonin anxiety and what what this may look like. So
4: with low serotonin anxiety, it's the anxiety in the head. So it's the worry, the ruminating thoughts this i can't switch this off I, you know um, i had this discussion with with my daughter um and she's you know she's got um kids with with autism and i'm worried about the the fact that she's not looking after herself and i can't switch this off you know whatever it is it might be a work situation but you've got this Constant worry this ruminating thoughts that you lie in bed at night and you can't switch the mind off a lot of people call it monkey mind They just you know, they can't switch the mind off you can we often associate low serotonin with depression So of course we will have that depression. We may have increased winter blues Uh, afternoon and evening cravings are a sign of low serotonin PMS Any kind of pain symptom, fibromyalgia, uh, joint pain, uh, TMJ, uh, um, anger issues, aversion to heat, these are all signs of of low serotonin. Mm -hmm.
0: What about uh, the uh, situations where there's low low GABA type of anxiety? anxiety? How, how do you go about addressing that?
4: So with low GABA anxiety versus the low serotonin anxiety, it's the physical tension. So you'll feel it in your shoulders. You may feel it in your gut. You may stress eat. You'll often hear uh, people say GABA doesn't work. It doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. It can't possibly have an effect. But we do know now that there is some... Uh, research saying maybe it does. We know that there's this vagus nerve connection and maybe it's connect. It's talking to the brain via the gut, the two-way communication that we have between the brain and the gut. We know we've got receptors in different parts of the body. We've got GABA receptors in the muscles. We've got GABA receptors in the endocrine tissue. We've got uh, GABA receptors in the pancreas. Uh, we've now got research showing that GABA is beneficial for
0: uh, insulin uh, resistance and diabetes. And last but not least, Dr. Krista Burns on amazing insights in the posture brain access. Why don't you just start by telling you people why posture is so important to you?
5: So why posture? I mean, you have so many things to think about. Why, why is posture important as well? Well, we've all been told to sit up straight our entire lives, haven't we? You know, our moms told us to sit up straight. Our teachers told us to sit up straight. Our grandmas told us to sit up straight. And yet everywhere we look, we see that children are having more and more of a C-shaped spinal curvature. We're looking down very much so more now in the digital age than in previous generations. So why is posture important? Posture is the structural framework of your body. It's how we resist gravity. What makes human beings different than animals in the animal kingdom is that instead of being in a quadruped position, we have this incredibly natural humanistic ability of balancing our entire mass of bodies over a small base of support, which is our two feet. Now every time that we stand up tall and stand upright, we are engaging our brain in a humanistic way. Whereas every time that we're slumped forward into a more primitive posture, back more towards quadruped, then we're actually utilizing our brain in a different way than we are when we're standing upright. So posture is declining with speed of technology. If you guys think about those images, maybe that you've seen of evolution where you go from an ape into a standing upright and then now by looking down and being seated in our, you know, in chairs, staring at a device. So every time that we lean forward and grab our smartphone and we look down in this position at varying angles, we're not only adding more stress, stress to the cervical spine. So if I move my neck forward about 60 degrees, then that's actually creating up to 60 pounds of additional pressure on the cervical spine, 60 pounds. So from a tech neck perspective, we're having more and more children who are presenting with migraines, with headaches, with neck pain, with tightness in their shoulders. And because of the proximity of our devices to our visual system, now it's actually overstimulating the amount of incoming visual stimuli coming from those devices. What's alarming about this from a a mental processing perspective is that the overstimulation from devices is stimulating the back part of our brain, our occipital lobe. Whereas the front part of our brain for upright stability for, you know, thought processes for cognition is being understimulated, And so we're in a compromised primitive position of our body. And now we're outsourcing our brain to our device and we're overstimulating the visual system and having less stimulation here from our frontal lobe.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest struggles right now because both parents, parents are using technology for for good, uh, but yeah. but there is this overuse of it. So it, it is finding that balance somewhere along the line. What, why do you think that, um, or what do you know, because it's not that you think, but what, what is grounded in the science that posture actually then contributes to things like symptoms of autism um, or ADHD or even sensory processing challenges?
5: And we're showing that children with ADHD, children with autism spectrum, have different postural patterns. There was a research today, I believe it is directly from 2020, and it's showing the postural trajectories of children with autism spectrum. And what they're showing is that children with autism spectrum, which of course is neurologic and development, then they stabilize their body posturally in different ways. One of the earliest indications is head lag, for example. So with an autism spectrum patient, when you're checking their ability as as an infant as a child to um, stabilize their body upright they we have a head lag meaning that we have lack of control of the cervical spine from a very very early onset this continues to create postural distortion patterns that we then see with lack of core stabilization with lack of development of the cervical curve of the lumbar curve And then you add devices on top of that as they become toddlers, as they become adolescents and teenagers. And not only did we not develop properly the cervical spine, but now we're flexed forward in this tech neck posture. So it continues to propagate what we call postural distortion patterns. So we've seen this with autism spectrum.
0: And that concludes our special episode. Today, you've had a taste of the incredible insights that will be shared during the 10 day autism, ADHD and sensory processing disorder summit that shares intervention, breakthroughs, and how to navigate options for parents of children with neurodevelopmental disorders. This is more than a summit. It's a resource and a toolbox packed with strategies, knowledge, and inspiration to better understand and support your child. The more we understand, the better we can navigate for our children and make the best decisions for our unique children so they can thrive too. Join us for free at the My Child Will Thrive dot com forward slash summit. And again, the link is ww.mychildwilthrive dot forward slash summit. Thank you for tuning in and I look forward to seeing you there.